Jacob, last week, first reality TV show, only there's no TVs. You basically have Jacob stealing a blessing. God had promised, God had promised that the, the younger would, would, would be over the older, the older would serve the younger. So this was prophesied, and Jason covered all this. And what you see is Jacob vying for a blessing. Jacob vying for the blessing, forcing it, forcing it, uh, going after something which was good, which was his because God promised it, but making it happen in a way which is unsavory. And, and I want to look at a question before we get started here. Uh, why do we do things we know to be wrong? Why do we do things we know to be wrong? Um, it's not ignorance because if it's ignorance, you don't know it's technically wrong. So last week, as you saw with Jacob, there was a point in which he asked his mother right before the big deception, if I do this, what if I get a curse instead of a blessing? Now, why would he say that? Because he knows he's lying and because he knows he's deceiving his father. And what, is, what does his mother say? May this curse fall upon me. So both of them are up to their eyeballs in deceit and trickery, and they know it. They know it's wrong. So this is not ignorance. This is not a sin of ignorance. They're plowing through this, fully aware. Now, there's times when we do things, we weren't, we're not aware. We're not aware. But I'm not, I'm not asking about those things. I'm asking about the times that you and I, we know what's right, we know what's wrong, and we plow through and we do what's wrong anyway. Why do we do that? You could say, that, well, it's because of sin. And that would be a correct answer, but that's too generic, it's too vague. It's like going to a funeral and saying, hey, how do they die? Well, their heart stopped beating. Well, yeah, of course their heart stopped beating. What, what was the initial cause? What, what, was the, what was the cause of death? Was it, a, was it pneumonia? Was it COVID? I mean, was it they get hit by a car? What happened? So sin is the right answer, but it's, it's too generic. The, the correct answer that we're going to focus on today is it's misplaced worship. It's misplaced worship. That's what's going on. Three things we're going to look at today. First of all, what is misplaced worship? How do you know it when you see it? What is it? What is misplaced worship? The second thing we're going to look at is what does it lead to? What does it lead to? When you and I fall into misplaced or misaligned worship, what are the consequences? And the third thing we're going to take a look at is how do we then realign it? How does the scriptures realign our heart? How does the gospel realign our heart so that we worship rightly? See, all behavior flows out of worship, whether it's misplaced worship or whether it's God-honoring worship. All behavior, all ethics flow from worship. So that's, that's important. That's where we're headed. So let's take a look. First of all, what misplaced worship is. Worship is simply this. It is ascribing ultimate worth to something. It's ascribing ultimate worth to something. When we sing, we are ascribing vocally ultimate worth to God. But worship, generically speaking, is ascribing worth to anything. Now, you can be Richard Dawkins. You can be an atheist. You can be someone who does not believe in God. But you all, all of us, all people on the earth are full-blown worshipers. Because everybody ascribes ultimate value to something. You may not be a Christian, but everybody ascribes ultimate 
value to something. So that's what worship is. Now, blessings, blessings is any good thing. Any good thing. Could be health, could be wealth, could be success, relationships, honor, a good family, esteem. In Jacob's case, he's going after a blessing. Yes? He wants the blessing. He wants it from his father. He wants to receive the rights of the firstborn, even though he's the secondborn. Now, this is legitimate because God has told Rebekah through a prophecy that the younger, or rather the older, will serve the younger. So it is through Jacob that the promise of Abraham is going to continue. So he wants something which is good. That's what he wants. It is a good thing. It's what he desires is not the problem. It's the degree to which he desires it is the problem. And that's where misplaced worship comes in. This is where you value the blessing more than the blesser. So all of those things, and those are just examples. You could fill in the blank. Lots of different things. Any good thing, health. Is health a good thing? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really good thing, especially if you don't have it. Once you lose your health, you really begin to understand, wow, health is a really great thing. Uh, wealth, it can be a good thing. It's not wrong to aspire to, to, to have wealth. Uh, Abraham, very wealthy. Isaac, very wealthy. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to acquire wealth. A success, not a problem. Good relationships. Who doesn't want to have good relationships? These are all good things. However, if you take any good thing and it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes the most important thing for Jacob. The most important thing is that he has the rights of the firstborn. That's the most important thing. That good thing is the most important thing. What happens? What happens? He values the blessing more than the blesser. You follow that logic? Now, anything that you desire is a blessing, and these are good gifts from God. I'm not talking about blatant sin. All of these things are good gifts. But once those good things, in this case, the blessing of the firstborn, which is promised to Jacob, once that becomes an ultimate thing, what happens? What happens, it leads to sin, Always, always. Once you dethrone God, and I don't mean intentionally, like you kick him off his throne, but once inadvertently we begin to worship, put as ultimate value the things, the gifts which he gives us, those ultimate things, we, we make them ultimate, all of a sudden, those become priority. They become, they become our center of gravity and we orbit around them and they direct our actions. They direct our thoughts. They direct our desires. And what happens? He says, what causes, this is James, we're jumping forward in the New Testament, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions, they're at war within you. You desire. You desire. And, and you don't have, so you murder and you covet and you, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it, to spend it on your passions. So th- this, is, this is what's going on. What you have, what you have in the characters that we looked at last week are all sorts of over-desires. Okay, you have Isaac and Rebekah. They have two children. Who's Isaac's favorite from last week? 
okay? Esau is his favorite. He's a hunter. Uh, he he, he kind of, he's like his dad. He likes the outdoors. Jacob is, a, is a, referred to as a tent dweller. He, he's, he's mama's favorite. So you have Esau is Isaac's favorite. So Isaac has a desire, a love for his son Esau. That's a legitimate love, yes? Is it a good thing to love your son? Of course. But he loves his son so much, he loves his son so much that he's reluctant, he's reluctant to allow the blessing which God has foretold would fall to Jacob to go to him. And so this creates a situation where Jacob and his mother are like, he's not going to give me the blessing. So his over-desire to see his, his beloved son Esau receive the blessing leads to the neglect of the promise of God. It sets this whole stage for this whole conflict. And then you have Rebekah. Well, she has a love for her other son, Jacob. Now, that's not a bad thing, but it's an over-love. She desires him to succeed so much that now she's willing to push him to lie, to cheat, and to steal. And of course, we know that Jacob, he desired a good thing, a literal blessing, the blessing of the firstborn, so much that he is willing to cheat, to lie, and to steal. All of them know what they're doing is wrong. Isaac knew that Jacob was to receive the rights of the firstborn, and he's dragging his feet. He's not going to do it. Rebecca knew that Jacob was to receive the rights of the firstborn, but she shouldn't lie, cheat, and steal. And so did Jacob. And yet it just, it just snowballs. It snowballs and it creates this, 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 this context in this scenario. To the point, to the point where after this is all done, Esau wants to kill his brother. And that sets the stage for Jacob having to flee and to go to his uncle 600 miles east, Laban, and, and to just basically lay low and hide out for years. For years, that sets the stage. So that's what happens here. That's what happens here. Then, and I'm not going to cover this verse by verse, but if you just kind of open your Bible and you just kind of glance at chapter 29, what do we have in chapter 29? We have Jacob arriving arriving to Rebekah's brothers, Laban's, and he meets, he meets Rachel. And he falls in love with Rachel, this beautiful girl. And he comes to Laban and he says, I, will, I, I want your daughter's hand in marriage. And so Laban, Laban says, work for me seven years and I will give you my daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. And Jacob says, working for you for seven years will be just like an hour just like, it'll be a short time because of my love for her. So he works seven years and, and they'll have the wedding and then he takes her into his tent and then he wakes up. It's like, you're not Rachel, this is Leah. And so he comes to Laban, he goes, you intentionally deceived me. He's like, well, it's not our culture and custom to give away the younger first. Would have been nice if he would have told him that on the front end, but he tricks him, he lies. The cheater, the liar, Jacob, is cheated and lied to by another trickster. Why? What is Laban's chief desire? What's his desire that rules his heart? Power and wealth. He sees an opportunity to entrap a young man who can grow his possessions and grow his tribe. So he's just a scheming, 
a scheming individual. It's not wrong for him to want to marry off his daughters, but he wants to marry them off in such a way that he can capitalize. He's using his daughters as pawns to, to, to build his empire. That's what's going on here. And then his daughters, his daughters, Leah, she's the, the first to marry. And, and she, what does she desire more than anything else? If you read chapter 29, she wants what she doesn't have, which is her husband's love. He doesn't love her. He got tricked. He was defrauded into this marriage. He does not love her. And so what does she do? She manipulates and she uses her ability to bear children to try to gain from her husband something that is legitimate to want. It is legitimate for a woman to want her husband's love. But she tries to use that ability to bear children. Surely now he will love me. And so that drives her. She's using that to get something from Jacob that she can't get. And then you have the other sister. You have the other sister, Rachel. She has her husband's love, but that's not what she really wants. What does she want? Well, if you look at the text, she says, give me children or I will die. And Jacob is furious. He's like, what, what am I, God? I can't open your womb. I can't, I, it's not my issue. And so what does she do? She wants children so badly that she pulls a Sarah and says, take my servant and have children by her. And so she manipulates her slave, her servant, gives him to her husband as a, as a, as a, as a, as a surrogate to, to bear children. And then Leah becomes jealous now because now there's children coming from a, from a, a, a surrogate. And so she then gives, gives him her, her, her maid. So now we have four women, four women involved, one husband, and you have the making of a reality TV show that is a dysfunctional mess. And it gets worse as the children grow older. Why? Because everybody desires something which is legitimate and good. Everything that they want is not sinful in and of itself. It's not wrong to want your husband's love. It's not wrong for a woman to want a child. It's not wrong for a guy like Laban to want to build his, his cattle empire. That's not intrinsically wrong. It's not wrong for Jacob to want the blessing of the, of, that God promised him. But when those things become ultimate things, they, they lie, they cheat, they steal, and they're just manipulative. They're, they're like people because they are people. That's the problem. Now, let's look at this. The irony here is all parties see the wrong done by others while remaining blind to their own sin. That is a general human principle. Can you agree to that? All of us, myself included, have generally, we think, 2020 vision when we are assessing the moral character flaws of other people, including our spouses, including our roommates, including the people we work with, the people we're close to. We can see it clearly, we're pretty sure. And when we do, we feel justified in our indignation and our condemnation when they do or say things which are clearly indications that they are worshiping something other than God. We can see it, we spot it. However, when we are the ones, when we are the ones who are called out and it's us and someone points out our sin, our failure, we generally feel hurt when others express indignation or condemn and condemnation of our actions. It's, we become self-defensive. What did Isaac do when the blessing was stolen from him? When, when Esau came and said, hey, dad, bless me, bless me. Who are you? I'm Esau. What, 
what, what, what did Isaac begin to do? He began to tremble violently. He saw clearly that he'd been tricked and it really infuriated him. He wasn't so angry the 20 or 30 years, however long it took, when he had no interest in passing on the blessing to Jacob because God told him that's who was going to be blessed. He wasn't so ticked off then. But now that he was on the receiving end of the injustice, he was really hot. And that's pretty common. That's pretty common. That's what misplaced worship actually leads to. So, how do you change? How do you change? Let's pause for a minute. Let's take a step back from thousands and thousands of years ago and looking at the, the, the reality TV show, which is Jacob's life and all the, the intrigue and the sabotage and the deceit. Take a look at your life. Take a look at your over-desires, the things which you want, which are legitimate, but maybe you want them a little bit too much and you're willing to send to get them. And the way that you've been hurt and the way that you've hurt others, take a look at that and, and ask the question, okay, how do I change? How do I change? How, how does someone like Jacob go from being dishonest and manipulative to being a man of integrity who, who says what he means and means what he says and tells the truth? How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you change? If pride is your issue, how, how do you go from being proud and arrogant to being gentle and humble? If you have a temper and you, you tend to you tend to get angry and you tend to be overbearing. How do you become gentle and lowly? If, if you have a tendency to struggle with lust, how do you become chaste? If you tend to have a tendency to, to want and accumulate too much, eat too much, drink too much, want too much, how do you become frugal? How do you, how do, you do that? I'll tell you how that what never works is trying harder never works. Just resolving to not be the way that you are. Because invariably, what controls our heart is what we value most, and that will dictate what we do and say later on. So here's what Jacob doesn't hear from God. God he has to encounter God. And here's what, here's, you, you're not going to see this in the scripture. You're not going to see God lecture Jacob. What we expect is a sermon from God on what it means to be a good moral person and a truth teller. You kind of expect a lecture from dad. You expect God to come down from heaven and say, you know what, Jacob, I've been watching. I get it. The rights of the firstborn, I promised. I, I prophesied. I gave your, gave your mom that vision. And you were right to want that. But you know you are a living, conniving weasel. And you need to stop. He never says that. It would be true. It would be true, but he doesn't say that. What does he do? What does he do? God helps Jacob realign his worship by giving a vision to Jacob of himself. You see, this, this is crucial. There is no change. Uh, there is not a heart transformation and change from the inside out until we have a proper view of the God we're worshiping. We have to see him as more than a blessing giver. We have to see him for who he is. Once we begin to see him more correctly, we have 2020 vision. We see the God that is as he is. 
he can capture our hearts and then our hearts become his. That's how that works. And, and that's where the gospel comes in. But let's, let's take a look, first of all, at the vision, at the vision that, that Jacob receives. I, I won't have it on the PowerPoint as a slide, but turn your Bibles to, to verse, um, verse 10 of chapter 28. Jacob left Beersheba, here, taking one of the stones and the place he put it under his head, lay down that place and dreamed this dream. He dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up in the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it and behold, the Lord stood above it. I want to stop right there. That word it, that word it, it's translated it, it's presumably referring to the ladder. It may be and is probably referring to Jacob. So the Lord is not standing up on top of a ladder way up there. He's standing in the midst of, beside, above, Below, he's, he's near Jacob. That's, I think the author's trying to convey that. So he's near Jacob. And, and then he says, he reveals himself. There's a revelation here that he says to Jacob. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you, are, you lie. I will give you to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And you and your offspring shall, uh, uh, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I just want to pause right there. The first thing that God, the first thing that God communicates to Jacob is that he is present. Jacob, when he wakes from this dream, he says, this is amazing. God is in this place, and I didn't know it. The first thing that he wants Jacob to understand is that he is omnipresent. He is with him. You've heard the phrase, Christians say it all the time, wherever two or three are gathered, he is in there. There I am in your midst. Okay, that's true. That's true. But I want to give you another truth. If all of us, when all of us leave this building and there's no one here, God's presence will be as much here as it is right now as when we are gone. Why? Because he's everywhere all the time. When we get into our cars and we drive home and we dro- you go out to eat and you go back to your, to your jobs tomorrow, he will be with you then as he is now. Whether you are consciously aware of his presence or not is not the point. Jacob was not aware of his presence before and now he is. The only thing that changed is God opened his eyes and showed him something that he could not see with his own physical eyes. So God wants him to know. I'm with you. I am with you. The second thing that he wants, wants him to know, that he wants him to know, is that God is active. Notice all the I wills, starting in verse 15. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Here's what he's saying. I am not the God of the deists. You know what a deist is? A deist is someone who believed that God created the universe. They believe in God. They believe in God. Believe that God created the universe. He kind of wound it up and he stepped back and he's not active. He's passive and he's watching. He may even be the judge, the judge of the living and the dead, but he's not a God who gets involved. He's not a God who gets his hands dirty. He's not a God who, who technically can be moved by prayer. He's just a God who sees and watches. That's not the God of the Bible. He's saying, listen, 
I'm in this from the long haul. I'm with you now. I'll be with you tomorrow. And I will not leave you until I have accomplished everything in your life that I promised you, that I promised your father, that I promised your grandfather. I'm going to see this through. He is actively involved. And Jacob needs to know that because before Jacob is thinking, I got to do all this. And so he's scheming all the time. He's scheming all the time. God gives Jacob a vision of himself that begins to realign his worship. So then there's a response. He responds to this new vision, this new vision of God. And how does he respond? Jacob makes a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, I, I will, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Okay, and I want you to just look at that. What is up with that vow? This is the first time, by the way, that there is a vow in the Bible. It's the first person to actually make a pledge or make a promise or make a vow to God. No one's ever done it before. Abraham didn't. Isaac didn't. Noah didn't. uh, Adam didn't. No one has done this. He He makes a bold proclamation. But notice, notice the, notice what he says. If you do this, well, then I'll do that. What's going on with that? What do you make of Jacob's vow? There's three different ways to look at this. There's three different ways. Number one, this is a mercenary vow. It's an if-then statement. If you do this, well, then I'll do that. This looks like bargaining, does it not? And that would be true to his character. I mean, he's a schemer. He's a manipulator. It looks like he's just playing this forward with God now. It's not very flattering. And honestly, that would be, that would be true to his character so far. So you could say, well, nothing's changed here. It's the same old Jacob. He's just playing God or trying to manipulate God. If you do this, like you say you're going to do, well, then I'll do this. Maybe. That's the plain reading. That's the plain reading. Now, a lot of commentators, in fact, I don't, I didn't look at every commentator that's ever commentated on this, but, but at least, you know, six, seven looked at these individuals. Many of them, at least half, more than half are saying, oh, no, 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 this is a bold proclamation of faith. This isn't mercenary. You see that word, which is translated if in the Hebrew, that can also be translated since. And so what Jacob is really saying is, God, since you're going to do all these things, I'm going to live big for you. This is a bold proclamation, a declaration of faith. God, I trust you. Since you're going to do all these things, well, then I'm going to do this. Maybe, but here's the problem with that. I cannot find an English translation. The NIV, the ESV, the New American Standard, the New Revised Version, the Old King James, the New King James, the Living Bible. I can't find an English translation that translates it since. They all translate it if. Now, that may or may not mean anything. But I'm pretty sure that Jacob hasn't gone from being a a scheming deceiver to being Abraham-like when he offered his son Isaac to be sacrificed. I'm pretty sure he didn't make that leap in a weekend. 
Pretty sure that's not the case. What's probably more likely is that this is a baby step of faith. It's not that he hasn't changed at all, and it's not that he's totally changed. It's that he's in the process of changing, and he has an embryonic faith, and he's caught a vision of God that he didn't have before, and it's moved him. And that's how every single one of us come to faith. (laughs) I'm still not terribly mature. I've been following Jesus since 1988. I hope I'm not as Jacob-like as I was in 1989, but I don't see myself as having arrived. And he certainly hasn't. He's he's just beginning this, this embryonic faith. How does it work? You know how it works. All of us have been there. You catch a vision of who God is, maybe in a sermon, maybe in a book you're reading, maybe in a worship song, and you're touched and you're moved and it grabs a hold of your heart and your affections are stirred and you see God more clearly than you did before. And in that moment, what happens? All of a sudden, you start making vows. I'm going to change. I'm going to start loving my wife. I'm going to start loving my children. I'm not going to be greedy anymore. I'm going to start being gentle. Guys that are looking at porn, I'm going to stop looking at porn. Never going to look at it again. No more lust for me. And we are serious when we make those vows. But what happens when Monday morning comes? The vision of God that you had, it's evaporated a little bit. You forgot the dream. It's not Monday goes by. Here's here's what's going on. He has the faith of his grandfather Abraham at this moment. Genesis 15, you remember it? Abraham doesn't believe. He's really struggling. How can I know? I don't have any children. Eleazar, take Eleazar. He's going to be my heir. No, no, no. Come outside. Look up. What do you see? Stars. Count them. I can't. There's too many. Exactly. Let me tell you something. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than all those stars. And what what does the author capture in in Genesis 15 verse 6? And Abraham believed God and he credited him as righteousness. That is an epic moment of faith, right? And what happens in chapter 16? He takes Hagar, his wife's servant, and impregnates her because he forgot. (laughs) He forgot. That's, That's common. That's common. We do this all the time. We get a vision for who God is, and then our, it's kind of like, you know, you drive in Iowa in the winter, and you, and you go through all the potholes, and then you got, you got to take your car, and you got to have the front end, what? Realigned. The, the alignment, the, the, the correction, it gets us going in the right direction until we hit a pothole. The alignment gets us going in the right direction, aligns our faith until we begin to lose sight of the vision that we have And we begin to forget. That's how it works. That's how it works. It's an immature faith. But it's faith. It's faith. It shows that he actually believes that God is going to do something. It may be a little bit mercenary, the whole if-then thing. And here's the danger. We're going to to play this out next week. But if you follow that through with that mercenary if-then, what happens when you don't get the blessing on your timetable? Well, then you begin to convince yourself and believe that God is not with you, 
that God is not all powerful, that God does not care, that God is distant, and you begin to think, I have to do this on my own. See chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27. The whole cycle starts again. You begin to take things into your own hands. You begin to try to produce things that God has promised you, but not on your timetable. And you, well, he's not there. I got to do this on my own. Now we're back to James chapter four. What causes fights and quarrels among you? We begin to stop trusting once we begin to forget, or maybe we don't ever, we don't even know who God is. That's why this realignment of worship is so important. We have to see, we have to see this with our, with our eyes. So let's take a look at some practical takeaways as we close here. First of all, we need a proper view of God. We're all flawed. We're all Jacobs in a sense. We're all Isaacs. We're all Rebecca's. We're all Laban's. We're all Leah's. We're all living stones that God is building into. We're all broken people. We're cracked vessels, Right? But the master builder is perfect and we need a clear vision of this master builder because as we begin to take a look and we begin to trust this master builder, then we begin to get a hold of what he can do in our lives. The verse here that's referenced is John chapter one, verse 51. Nathaniel is told to come see Jesus. Could he be the Messiah? Where's he from? He's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? We'll come and see. So they bring him. And so, and so Jesus sees, they interact with each other. And by the way, I love this episode of The Chosen. I have no idea if it happened this way, but I like the way they portray it. And, and Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. You're the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus is like, you believe because I saw you under the fig tree? I tell you the truth. You will see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. You'll see far greater things than these. And it refers to Jacob's dream. If you follow me, Nathaniel, I will give you a picture of your Father in heaven because I and the Father are one. You will see the good shepherd in me. And Psalm 23, you'll live it because I am the good shepherd and I will lead you beside still waters and I will make you to lay down and my rod and my staff, they will comfort you and I will prepare a table before your enemies and I will go through the valley of the shadow of death and I will taste death on your behalf and I will bring you into the house of of the Lord forever. For I am with you now and I will never leave you and I will never, ever forsake you. He gives Nathaniel and these individuals, these disciples, a clear vision of God and it changes their lives forever until they forget. And you see it played out with these guys. They forget. They make bold proclamations. I'll never leave you until I leave you. They forget. And so we need to remember. We need to understand that these promises are based on grace. Why is that so important? Because you will fail and you'll forget and you'll blow it and you'll be so angry with yourself and so disappointed with yourself and so filled with shame and so filled with regret. 
Why can't I do this? And then you'll begin to believe that maybe God has abandoned you because you're a loser. Jacob never would have received this dream if it was based on anything other than grace. (laughs) Just look at his record in the chapters before. There's no rebuke here in this dream. Does Jacob deserve a rebuke? Slightly, but he doesn't get one. He receives a vision of God. Why? Because it's all of grace. So why doesn't God rebuke him? Why Why doesn't he at least spank him? Because the good shepherd takes the spanking. By the way, he does receive the consequences of his own folly in terms of relational sin and all that that brings. Oh, there's plenty of pain. There's plenty of comeuppance in Jacob's life. He experiences the fruit, the bitter fruit of his sin, but he doesn't receive God's condemnation. Those are different things. And lastly, we need daily reminders of his promise. That's why this this group of people is so necessary. It's so necessary for you and I to be in community with other believers who can remind us. Why? Because I'll forget tomorrow, but maybe you won't because we're together in fellowship. You'll remind me of something that I've forgotten. And that's why we need to be in the word and we need to cultivate the spiritual discipline. So like I don't like discipline. (sighs) Discipline Discipline is what you do to remind yourself of who God is. It's not what I do to get something from God. It's what I do to continually remind myself of what I'm prone to forget. The character and the nature of God, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, prayer, the word. Those are the means by which I am saturated by by the truth of God. This is how I get a vision from God. It's how I grab a hold. That's how you do it. All of those things. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encourage one another all the more so as you see the day approaching. Spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. What does that mean? The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, here's the deal. You need to remind one another who God is and what he's done for you. Because you're going to forget. And you need to spur one another on. The only way to spur someone on to love and good deeds is not to just yell at them and say, you know what, you need to be more loving. You need to do more good deeds. The only way that anyone has ever spurred on to love and good deeds is to be reminded of the love and the good deeds of Christ that he has done for us, for his glory and for our good. And that's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love, which is so so rich, so beautiful, and so not deserved by me or Jacob or Abraham or Isaac or anyone in the kingdom, but you give it lavishly. Thank you for being the giver of good gifts. Help us to believe. Help us to trust. Help us to, to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, so, Lord, that we might become a capture a vision of you which is true, which is right, which is good, and which leads us to bear fruit, fruit that you produce in us, not that we produce ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.